Let's pray. Father God, oh, we thank you for the privilege of coming together before you and worshiping you, thinking about these magnificent heavenly truths, thinking about things that in one sense we were made for and made to think about, and in a very another real sense are far too glorious for us. They are beyond us. So as we consider your words this morning, give us divine aid to read them. Give us divine light to see them and to see Christ in them. And help us to be made to look more and more like Christ as a result. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Nobody, at least that I know of, likes their alarm clock. Nobody enjoys hearing it morning after morning. Nobody wakes up to their phone or their clock radio or, in my case, a beeping sunrise alarm clock. Looks at it and thanks it and says, ah, another peaceful morning with my good friend. Nobody appreciates being startled. If you're camping in the woods, you're sitting by yourself, by your tent, the crackling fire in front of you, darkness and loneliness around you. Someone comes up like Judah just did and goes, Hey! You're not going to appreciate that. No one's grateful for a musical note rudely and intentionally played out of place. It can be alarming. You're listening to your favorite song, maybe, being played live, and the performer plays the wrong chord loudly and on purpose. You're kind of taken aback. If you were listening, lost in the music, you are suddenly awakened, lost no more. Well, in John 1, 1 through 18, often referred to as the prologue of John, John 1, 1 through 18 is startling. Some of the things John says stop us in our tracks. But he does this on purpose, and he does it for our good. So no one likes their alarm clock till you have to wake up for a job interview or maybe an early flight for an awesome two-week vacation. Then we hear it and we thank it and we say, oh, I'm so glad that thing was working this morning. Nobody would smile at, the, at Judah when he jumps out and scares you when you're camping unless he jumps out and says, hey, there's a snake right there. Slowly come over to me. Nobody's grateful for someone messing up their favorite song with a chord played out of place until the pianist uses it to launch into a beautiful solo. If we were mindlessly listening, that chord change might cause us to pay closer attention. John startles us on purpose. He wants to wake us up to consider some of the most fundamental, important truths of our lives. We all want to know where we come from. We want to know what life is, what true life is. We want to know how to have eternal life. 
We want to know who God is. These are questions that are just baked into who we are as humans. But isn't it true that finding answers to those questions takes work? It takes hard work. And thinking too long on them can tend to tie us up in knots. And so it starts to become easier just not to think about them too much. Sometimes they don't even feel all that important. I'll leave that stuff to pastors or philosophers. Sometimes it feels more important to think about more pressing questions. Questions about school or work or relationships or maybe what Christmas presents to buy. Well, John wants to wake us up, to snap us out of our stupor and lift our eyes to truths that are important, important for our lives. He wants to wake us up to truths that we can know, that we're meant to know, that aren't meant to tie us up in knots, but meant to free us and to lead us upward to a life of meaning and joy. So he uses surprising language to help us to pay attention. And we'll see in John 1, 1 through 18, that he makes three surprising statements. Three surprising statements really couldn't be more important or fundamental. Now make three surprising statements that are all about Christ. Say that God creates through Christ, God adopts through Christ, and God reveals himself through Christ. God creates through Christ, adopts through Christ, and reveals himself through Christ. This passage is all about the surprising centrality of Christ. The surprising centrality of Christ. Look at the first few words. The first few words of John 1.1 are well-known words. We've already said them a couple times this morning. They're well-known to us, especially if we grew up in church. They're even well-known to our culture. They would have even been more well-known to Jews who first picked up John's gospel in the beginning. In the beginning. We all know what should come next. If I said, I pledge allegiance to the, we know to say, flag. If I sing, joy to the world, the Lord is come. We know this. Well, in first century Jewish culture, if someone says, in the beginning, you know that the next words are, God created the heavens and earth. You know that. But surprisingly, John says, in the beginning was the Word. Imagine hearing that for the first time. You can picture the reactions you might get in a congregation of mostly Jewish Christians who grew up memorizing Genesis. So someone stands up to read John, and the first words come out mindlessly, and you're barely listening, you're going along in the beginning, and as you start to say to yourself, God created, the person reading the text says, in the beginning was the Word. But if you weren't paying attention, you are now. But what is it that John's calling our attention to? What does he want the hearers to know? What's he doing by replacing, basically he's replacing the word God in Genesis with the word word? Is he implying that the word was already there with God before creation? Is he implying that the word 
might even be God himself? Well, he answers those questions with a strong yes in his next two phrases. Look at the rest of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is, more precisely, who is this Word? What does he mean by with God and was God? Who is this Word? As we see in the rest of the prologue, and the rest of the whole book of John, the Word is a person. Jesus. And you'll see other words he uses for, he calls this one person multiple things in our prologue. He calls him Jesus, the Christ, the light, the life, the Son of God, the only begotten, and even the only begotten God there in 18. All these titles we read in the prologue are referring not to a concept, but to a person. And that person was with God already when God creates in the beginning, and even is God himself. How can these things be? Well, I think the first thing to notice as we start to answer that question, first thing to notice is this, that God's revealed this truth. Whatever it is being said here, God's said it. And so since he's said it, we should seek to understand it. Since God's said it, we should try to understand it. God's chosen to reveal something about himself here. And if God's revealed it, we should know it. We should try to understand it. We should ask questions about it. If and when God speaks, we should listen. So that's the first thing we want to keep in mind. The second thing before we answer this question, the second thing to notice is that God uses language that's intentionally beyond us. It's, it's intentionally beyond our understanding. He uses a, a phrase, he turns a phrase that we would never really say about ourselves or use in any regular language. You can't say you were with someone and that you were someone. Even when someone starts talking about themselves in the third person, we think that that person's a bit strange. Say, Cal loves homemade pizza night. It's Cal's favorite night of the week. If I had talked like that all the time, you'd think I was a little bit off, and you might even think I have some kind of psychological issue. But John's not saying that God has some kind of split personality disorder. John's cluing us in to the fact that he's talking about divine realities that are, in a sense, too great for us. The infinite, eternal God can't be fully comprehended by finite, limited humans like you and me. But that's okay. That should actually comfort us to know that there are things, and these are some of those things, that are too big for us. So when we're tempted to throw our hands up and say, I'll never understand, you might be right. And that's okay. The questions you have might never get answered. But when you're tempted to think, I don't understand, everyone gets it but me, you might be wrong. So don't be discouraged. None of us can fully wrap our minds around the truth that God's giving us here in John 1.1. But the truth that he's giving us is this. God is Trinity. God is Trinity. He's triune. John's teaching us about the doctrine of the Trinity. 
How do we reconcile the fact that the Word was with God and the Word was God? We do this. We confess that God is Trinity. He's triune. We confess these two realities from Scripture. God is one. And there are three persons who are God. God is one, and there are three persons who are God. God is one. There's one God. He's eternal, uncreated, almighty, unchanging, glorious. Scripture is clear about this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Isaiah 44. In the New Testament, Paul says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. The Christians are monotheists. We believe there's one God. We confess that this one God has revealed himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Father, and the Holy Spirit's neither of them. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. In the Great Commission, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says of himself in John 8, I am. He takes the divine name upon himself. Later in the Gospel of John, he says, I and the Father are one. Thomas, even later, calls him his Lord and his God. Thomas worships him, and Jesus accepts that. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit too. Uh, one example is when he's lied to in Acts 5, Peter says, you've lied not to man, but to God. The Holy Spirit is a person, being, a divine being, who is God himself. The foundation of the Christian faith is that we believe in one God who has eternally existed in three persons. There's one being, God. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The New City Catechism puts it helpfully. There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. One God, three persons. Unity and plurality. Oneness, yet multiple. We see these two aspects of our God in this first verse in John 1. The Word was with God. We see that. With God. So there's a plurality in the eternal uncreated God or Godhead, isn't there? You see that word with? 
the Word was with the Father in the beginning. God the Father, that means God the Father was never alone, ever. And he says the Word was God. The Word was with God, the Word was God. There's an essential unity to God. There aren't three gods. There aren't three separate beings. The mystery of the Trinity is there's three persons in the one being, God. This point that we've just belabored, like many truths in the Christian faith, is simple enough to do what we just did and have a child understand it in a catechism question. It's also profound enough and deep enough for countless volumes to be written about it. But one of the most helpful ways of understanding this mystery I've found is by asking, who creates? Who is it that creates? I think John's so helpful and so wise in starting off here, when he's starting to help us understand what he means by what he says in the first verse. He starts off by talking about creation. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him. That is the word, Jesus. All things were made through him. And just to make sure that we know what he's talking about, he reiterates it. He says, without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, John's saying this. If you put everything that exists, everything that has being, everything that exists into two categories, made and unmade, made and unmade, creator or creation, creator or creature, If you put everything that exists into one of those two categories, which side does the word go on? He goes on the creator side, the uncreated side. The Father didn't make him. He's always been on this side of that line, of that divide. He's from the Father, but he has always been from the Father. Always, as uh, people used to talk, always begotten by the Father. Jesus is always on this side of that line. And that's shocking. He's uncreated. That makes the rest of the Gospel of John shocking. This man who's walking around Israel is claiming to be on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. He's going around saying, I am. No one made me. Why is this important? Why is this important for us? Because if the person of Jesus, the man who Christians follow, is the creator God, then he's able to recreate you. We don't follow, we don't worship, we don't trust a created being. We don't just have a really good example who shows us what it's like to live in God's world. We trust in Christ who created the world and who's able to recreate you. And we're in need of recreation. We all fall on this side, on the creature side of the creator-creature distinction. But we aren't just creatures. We're fallen creatures. We're sinful creatures. We're rebellious creatures. 
We need to be remade. Just like we've all been made once by God, we're all in desperate need of being remade by Him. And that leads us to our second surprising statement from John. The way to be made new, or the way to be, as John puts it, reborn later in his gospel and born here, the way to be made new, to be reborn, the way to be adopted into the family of God is through believing in Christ. The way to be adopted into the family of God is through believing in Christ. You see that in verses 6 through 15? Look for the words believe. Look down at verses 6 through 15. Look for the words believe and receive. And you'll see that they're attached to that phrase, in him. Believe in his name. Notice also that this section is bookended by references to John the Baptist. Not the author, John the Evangelist, but John the Baptist. And just really briefly, I think that John has chosen to introduce John the Baptist here uh, and, and, and bookend this section talking about him is because his ministry is all about Jesus' coming to reconcile a people to God, coming to adopt a people. That's what Jesus' earthly ministry about. That's what all the Gospels say John was about, was pointing people to that work of Jesus. Look at verses 12 and 13 now, though. Look at verses 12 and 13. John says there that it's those who believe in Christ who are given the right to be children of God, who are said to be born of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These two verses might surprise you. This might surprise you. First, because it implies that we need to be born again. That's what Nicodemus is surprised about in John 3, a famous encounter with Nicodemus and Jesus. He's surprised. He doesn't understand what Jesus is saying when he says, you need to be born again. So first, this passage might surprise us because it implies we need to be born again. Second, it might surprise you that everyone isn't counted as a child of God. To a Jew hearing this, they might be surprised that anyone else might be counted as a child of God. For us, what we're most surprised to hear probably is that God would consider anyone not a child of God. This also might surprise you that the source of adoption is God. It's not us. It's not our will. It's not our nature, our birth. It's not our decision, our effort, not our works. It's ultimately God who is the source of our adoption. That too is surprising. But what really should surprise us, what really should surprise us is that the holy God, infinite, eternal, holy and righteous and good, would want anything to do with us, with creatures who have rebelled against him. We're small, sinful, and defiled. And it should surprise us all the more that God enters into creation. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas time. And humbles himself to death to accomplish this adoption. 
And this is surprising. Because the Old Testament teaches us that the essence of religion is this. This is how one theologian helpfully puts it. J.I. Packer. The essence of the Old Testament is this. Fear the Lord. That's, that's what the Old Testament teaches us about religion. Fear the Lord. In other words, humble yourselves before Him. Recognize His infinite worthiness and your smallness and sinfulness. The Old Testament teaches us that it's, it's right to recognize that difference. And in the New Testament, starting with John 1, we don't see a different God. God's still the same. He doesn't change. He doesn't have a new attitude about us or our sin. He hasn't said, ah, that's a little harsh back then. I actually don't mind a little sin. So we don't see a different view of God in the New Testament. We don't see a different view of man. Go back and listen to last week's sermon. Nathan was clear in helping us see that God's view of man hasn't changed. Hasn't changed from Genesis 6, where the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually, to Romans 3 and Ephesians 2, where we're not good and dead in our sin. So the New Testament doesn't give us a new idea about God or a new idea about man. What it does give us is the gospel. It gives us the gospel. It tells us that God does want something to do with us. It tells us that he has a fatherly love for people like you and me in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that surprising? The holy God who ought to have nothing to do with us has adopted a people to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. If the Old Testament asks, how can this kind of God have anything to do with this kind of people? The New Testament answers, in Christ. The good news of the gospel is that God sent his son to become a man. To take on flesh. To actually add a human nature to his divine, eternal nature. And taking on that flesh, he lived a perfect God-honoring life, becoming an acceptable sacrifice, a worthy substitute. He bore the penalty of sin on the cross, forgiving, justly forgiving, legally pardoning guilty sinners who receive Him by faith, who in the fear of the Lord humble themselves, confess their sin, turn from it, trust in Christ, looking to Him for forgiveness, righteousness, and even adoption. And those who receive Christ by faith are given the right to become children of God. Because Christ is the Creator, we can be recreated through Him. Because Christ is the true Son of God, we can truly become sons and daughters of God in Him. When God saves us, He adopts us into His family. The good news of the gospel isn't just that Christians get to escape punishment. It certainly is that. That's true. But it's so much more. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ, we're sons and daughters of God. God Himself becomes our Father. As John says in 1 John 3, 
see what kind of love the Father has given to us. We should be called children of God. It means more than forgiven rebels, more than submissive servants. God the Father counts believers as sons and daughters. By faith, Christians are united so closely to God's only begotten Son that Christ can't help but look to us as adopted brothers and sisters, and the Father can't help but look at us and say, I'm your Father too. We're counted in Christ, in union with Him as members of the family. We not only escape the wrath of God, but experience the fullness of the, of the divine love of the Father. We have all the blessings, all the privileges of being in the family. This includes a closeness with our Father that we didn't experience before. We have access to the throne of grace in Christ. And that means we can go to God in prayer. We can go to God in prayer as a Father. Not the way that you might submit a request on a website uh, like AT&T or State Farm. If you're having a problem, you go there and there's a little pop-up at the bottom. What can I help you with today? Pretending to be a person, you know it's not a person. You fill it out, they give you an automatic unhelpful answer and you're not sure if you're ever going to get any kind of real help. Not like that. We have access to the Father in the way that I've seen many Loudon kids interrupt meetings with me and Nathan with a phone call over something very trivial. And Nathan interrupts our important meeting. Might be important. Might not be. But always interrupts it. No matter how trivial, he knows that the call's coming through. They have his father's ear. We have our father's ear in that same way. We can come to him expecting to be heard, expecting to not only be heard, but be heard with love and prepared to receive good fatherly gifts from the one who knows what's best for us. Do you pray as though God were your father? Do you pray lovingly, dependently, and confidently? I wonder if you pray at all. Christian, you have your father's ear. He delights to hear you. He delights to hear you, and he delights to care for you. Another great privilege of our adoption is God's fatherly care. He guides our lives with loving care of a father. This frees us from worry as his children. Frees his children from constant anxiety, from fretting that every decision we make is the wrong one, from worrying that tomorrow everything's just going to fall apart. Jesus lived with total confidence in his father's care. And he teaches us to do the same. Matthew 6, a famous passage about anxiety. He's talking about God clothing the, the fields with flowers and feeding the sparrows. He says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. But notice where Jesus grounds that instruction to not worry. He says, Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
The only way to live like this, Jesus is saying, is through adoption. The only way that this can be yours, this attitude can be yours, the only way that this can hold up under the toughest days, the only way is to know God as more than a distant deity, but as a loving Father. And that's just what God's made himself to be to us in Christ. Galatians 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The privileges of adoption are fellowship with God, living under his fatherly care. And as we see here in Galatians, that we're heirs. We're expecting an inheritance. And that promised inheritance is eternal glory. Even a share in our elder brother, Jesus' glory. That's family privilege. With these privileges come responsibilities. Both Galatians 4, the passage we just read, and Romans 8, if you want to look at that later this afternoon, talk about the privileges of sonship, of adoption. But right next there, there is, is the responsibility that comes with that kind of privilege, that kind of adoption. With family privileges come family responsibilities. But these responsibilities aren't burdensome chores. They're not monthly membership fees. They're certainly not entrance fees. But what are they? What are the responsibilities? Only this. Only one. That you look like the family. That you look more and more like your older brother, Christ. That you look like the family, or as Jesus puts it in John 15, that by abiding in him you bear fruit. Or as Paul puts it in Philippians 1, you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. These are all ways of saying that same thing. That adopted sons and daughters must look like the family. We're not talking about outside, about some appearance, about dressing the right way when you come to church, about putting on a good face for others. So if you adopt someone, especially if they're a different ethnicity, they'll never look like you. But over time, what will happen? They'll start to talk like you, move around like you, and think like you. Over time, they'll behave just like any natural child of yours. They'll behave the way you start to behave. They'll start behaving the way you behave. It's the same with children of God. As time goes on, we start to look more and more like Christ, our older brother. We'll desire holiness. We'll love God and his law. We'll love other children, our brothers and sisters, forgiving them, serving them, including them in our days and in our lives. So it's our hearts, our character, that looks more and more Christ-like over time. God adopts us. He gives us his spirit so that we grow to more and more look more and more like Christ. He brings us into his family and he grows us to look like his family. 
to be in the family, to be adopted, to know God as a father in Christ is the only way we can truly know God. What John's telling us in the last few verses of this passage of the prologue is that God's self-revelation is centered on Christ. To search for him, for God, in any other way is impossible. You will not find him. But look to Christ, to the God-man, and you can know God. God creates through Christ, he adopts through Christ, and he reveals himself through Christ. And that order might seem strange, by the way. Don't we have to know God before counted as sons? But I think it's helpful to think in this way. Knowing God is our end, the point. It's the purpose for which we were created. Jesus says in John 17, and this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So knowing God is an appropriate end to John's prologue. God reveals himself through Christ. And this, I think, is why John chooses to call Christ the Word, way back up in verse 1. The Word makes the unknown God known. Throughout the Old Testament, God works to make himself known to his people, to his creation, by his Word. He speaks, as we read in, our, uh, in the first thing we did this morning, he speaks, and there's a world to know him. He speaks, and, and then he forms a people to hear him. He speaks, and he teaches that people about himself. So God was, and still very much is, known through his word. But what was only partial, we could say in seed form in the Old Testament, is filled out, given flesh and bones, quite literally, in the New Testament. What was words on tablets of stone become a living, breathing man. So what Moses gave, the law, was true. The law tells us something true about God, about his character, about his nature, who he is. He's holy, he's honest, he's faithful. Moses gave the law. But what Christ gives is himself. And that's how God is fully and finally known. We know God truly, savingly, and lovingly only in Jesus Christ. And that's the final shocking truth that John says in verses 14 through 18, especially in that last verse, 18. This is the conclusion, the last surprise of John's prologue, that this man that he's about to write about in the next 20, 21 chapters, this man, Jesus Christ, is God's great, true, and final revelation of himself. He makes the invisible God known. Jesus does. It's not in Exodus, not in the Exodus from Egypt, that we see God most clearly. It's not in his thundering from Mount Sinai raining down fire that we see God most clearly. Not in his powerful defeat of the Assyrian army where 
He wipes them all out like it was nothing. It's not in a gold-plated temple in Jerusalem that we know God most clearly. Look at verses 16 and 17. Do you see the escalation there? Grace upon grace, verse 16. Grace and truth above the law in 17. Christ above being contrasted and escalated over against Moses. It's not that prior revelation, but in Christ we know God most clearly. Those prior revelations were true. Same way you can look at a shadow and know truly about what's casting that shadow. You can see God and know God in the Old Testament. But it's not until the New Testament where we turn our eyes from looking at the shadow to looking at the object that's casting that shadow. Christ. When you look at one of the hundreds of acorns Millions of acorns falling right now. Our backyard is full of them. When you look at an acorn, you say, that is an oak. It's an oak acorn. But it's not until it's planted and grown and mature that you can know truly and fully what an oak tree is. So Christ was a seed in the Old Testament, but known truly and fully in the New. All God's works in the Old Testament were real true revelations of himself. They're all true works from the true God. They all teach us about him. They're actually necessary for us to know what's going on in the new. But in all that time, no one laid their eyes upon him. No one looked at something or someone and could say, that, there, that is my God. Until Christ, his Son, Begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, until he took on flesh, took on a human nature, then went to the cross, humility, suffered, died, and rose again. Not until Christ came was the fullness of God's glory and grace made known. Only then, when he tells Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, did man set his eyes on God. Only standing in front of his disciples with nail-pierced hands could someone look and cry out, my Lord and my God, like Thomas. The most shocking part of the Gospel of John is that God, in his fullness of power and glory, is seen most clearly in the weakness and humility of Jesus Christ, the God-man, as he suffers and dies on a cross. As he does so to please his Father, to create a family, to recreate the world that's gone off the rails, to make known the glory, grace, power, and love of God. We know God fully and truly only when we look to Christ. Since this is true, I have two final questions for you this morning. Where do you look to know God? And 
where will others look? Where do you look to know God? When you think about God, what do you think about? How central is Christ to your thoughts? How often is he involved in your prayers? Paul couldn't pray without mentioning him. How central is Christ to your prayers? When you read your Bible, are you searching for a, a vague notion of God? Or are you looking for the person of Christ? When you need to feel the love of God, the fatherly love of God, do you tend to think of the cross of Christ? When you need help fighting sin, do you draw from the strength of our sinless Savior? When you're racked with anxiety, guilt, or anger, is Christ where you run? When you need truth, holiness, and life, do you look to the light and the light himself? Where do you look to know God? And lastly, where will others look? Where will others look? Can they look to you? Can they look to us? To Millwood? We are the body Christ. God's chosen instrument for making Christ visible to the world. We're the mouthpiece through which God speaks. We're the family of God. So when someone looks through the window, do they see people who look like their father, their big brother? Not these physical windows, but when someone comes to join us, when they spend time around us, when they look at us from not quite the inside, what do they see? Does our love for one another surprise them? Does our worship amaze them? Does our hospitality welcome them? Does our truth, our honesty, compel them to come to the light? Christ is light. He is life. He's the center of creation, the center of adoption, the center of revelation. Since he's the creator, he can recreate us. Since he's the son, the true son, he can make us sons and daughters. Since he's true God, we can see God, know God, when we look to him. Christ is the surprising center, all God's work in this world. See the center of God's work in you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, our triune God, eternal, unchanging, three in one. We thank you for Christ, for the one you've given us, the incarnate word through whom we know you, through whom We are recreated, born again, brought into your family, through whom we know you, the invisible God. Lord, these are things too grand for us. Thank you for wrapping us up in your glory and your grace.
in Christ and Christ alone. Amen.